0: So, I'm super excited as we continue to press into the book of Titus and we move on because I want to teach you a truth today that I think can actually be incredibly powerful in your life if you just grasp it. I mean, really internally grasp it. But I I can't teach you the first truth until I teach you another truth first. And this is a truth that you've got to grasp and and it's got to hit you on your heart that you are willing to respond to. And here's the truth first truth I need to give you our God is good and he is worthy of your praise. You believe that? Do you, do you believe our God is good, and he's worthy of praise? Now don't golf clap the Lord. You either believe he is good and worthy of your praise, or you don't believe it at all. Are you willing to praise him? Are you willing to give him glory? Look, don't be ashamed of the Lord right now. Tell him that you're glad, that he's a good God, And that he's worthy of your praise. Don't be stiff right now before Almighty God. You tell him that you believe he is worthy of your praise. Praise God. You can sit back down. Now, some of you are going, that was really unusual right there to start off with a sermon. It was a science experiment uh, that I was doing to teach you the second truth. And I learned a whole lot about you by this second truth. The second truth I want you to understand is that you and I can be beautifully influenced by people, or we can remain stone cold if we don't understand how influence works. Here's my guess there are, I would say, about 95% of you in this room, and you believe God is worthy of a standing ovation of praise. You believe it, but you don't normally give it to Him. And so I had about 50 to 70 people in the room who were ready beforehand that when I said our God is good, he's worthy of your praise, that we're prepped and ready to stand up and give God praise. And there were a number of you in here, and that's all you needed to give God a standing ovation of praise. You were just waiting for people around you to get crazy enough to praise God, and you stood up and you said yes and amen. Glory to the the God of the universe. I'm so glad I get to give him a standing ovation of praise. And there were many of you who didn't stand up. It's not because you're bad, but let me tell you why you didn't stand up. Because you were raised in a tradition of people that—that's not how you behave in church. You—you you, okay? Yeah, you, you golf clap the Lord. That's right. I'll amen every once in a while, but I don't get all crazy in church. That's just not me. No, that's not you. That's the influence that's been upon you. The power of influence. You are who you are because of the influences that have been upon your life, whether you realize it or not. Grew up in a certain kind of church where this is how you were—you behave in church. You don't make noise, you don't go to sleep, you listen to the word, you stay calm. That's one tradition. Then you got the other tradition, if you don't make a word, you're dead spiritually. What's wrong? You better get up and hoop and holler and thank the Lord and praise him. And yeah, you guys, you got a few of those in here right now. But see, who you've been influenced by determined how you responded to that. You're learning something about yourself. Not that you're good or bad. One's not better than the other. It's just you have been wildly influenced by the people around you, for good or for bad. The Social scientists and behavior scientists, they teach that really all you are is the sum of the five people you spend the most time with. Just find the average of those five people, that's, that's who you are that they affect you way more than any kind of willpower you have or response or resolution you might make. All these studies about like weight loss, that if you wanna lose weight, the number one indicator isn't, did you make a New Year's resolution? It's not, did you buy a gym membership? It's not, did you buy some new cookbooks and decide you're gonna eat differently? It's, who do you spend time with? And they come to two key factors. The two key factors are, who are you connected with and how much do you trust them? Because the more connected you are to them and the more you trust them, the more you are influenced by them. Going back to what I was showing you earlier, there were some of you very influenced by grandma who when you went to church, she said, be quiet, sit there and pay attention. So influenced, in fact, that even when a bunch of people around you stand up to applaud, you just couldn't do it. Even if you wanted to, like, nope, grandma told me this is how you behave in church. Grandma is amazing. I'm not not trying to dog grandma here. I'm just trying to show you Here's somebody that you trusted and were connected with, which is why there was influence upon you that controls your behavior even today, however long you may be separated from it. Connectedness and trust. This is one of the main reasons why we see as parents a shift. When we have younger kids, that we are, they are connected to mom and dad more than anybody else, and they trust mom and dad, and they may not always behave the way they're supposed to, but they are the most influenced by mom and dad. And then what happens Get into teenage years, they start getting less and less connected to mom and dad, and they start trusting mom and dad less and less. And then they start connecting to other people and trusting them. And now we watch influence begin to shift. This is one of the main reasons why you don't have to teach a parent. They already know it intuitively that their kids' friends will influence them way more than the home once they get to a certain age. We pray for good friends because we know the power of the influence of people around them, for good or for bad. But the problem is we're not usually aware of people's influence upon us, and therefore we don't guard ourselves. So behavioral scientists, psychologists, sociologists will often tell you, if you want to change who you are, two things you got to do. Start spending time with the kind of people that you want to be like and start eliminating the kinds of influences that you don't want to have in your life. Those are the two things you got to do. Now, the number one struggle we have is elimination of influences because it just it feels wrong. There are people in our lives that we know are bringing us down. We know they are a bad effect upon us. We know that we don't don't behave more Christ-like when we're around them, but we just can't seem to come to sever that relationship or their influence upon us. Maybe because, I don't know, it feels unchristian to distance when what you're going to hear from the Apostle Paul is if you don't eliminate that influence on your life, ultimately it will eliminate your faith because their influence is that strong. That's what Paul's gonna tell Titus in chapter one. I want you to open your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Titus. We're gonna be in chapter one. Now, let me tell you, just uh, as you, if you, we have guests in here every Sunday, if you're a guest, here's what you need to know. We're going through the book of Titus. It's just three chapters, and we're just going chapter by chapter, verse by verse. This morning, we're gonna be looking at verses 10 through 16. Again, just working our way through it. But the context of it is uh, this church that was founded by the Apostle Paul on the island of Crete. And Paul, he had a lot of missionary journeys. He would plant churches all over the place. He would preach the gospel, and then he would leave and let the church begin to form. Now, the church in Crete was beginning to have distortions to it. There was a danger. It was, it was starting to struggle. And so Paul sent Titus to the church in Crete to help correct it. And we heard last week, one of the main ways he does it was by putting spiritual authority in the church, elders. He talked about, here's who you need to have elders in the church, and here's what they're supposed to be like. And then this week, he tells us why those elders are needed, what they're protecting the church from. And it's the harmful influence of people that are in, the, in their, their very land. So that's verses 10 through 16 of Titus chapter 1. Let me read it for you. Paul says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. All right? these are pretty rugged Words that Paul has for this particular group of people, and the reason why goes back to what I said at the beginning. He he knows, though the the believers in the island of Crete may not know, that this influence was going to eliminate their faith, utterly destroy them if they weren't cautious, because they didn't see the influence. So he comes in and tells us the group that he's concerned about in verse 10. Go back and reread verse 10. We're just going to walk through these verses. Says, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Now, when he mentioned circumcision party, he's he's telling us now the group he's referring to. They were a group known as the Judaizers. These were people primarily from the city of Jerusalem that had believed in Jesus, but they also believed that you had to be a good Jew in order to be a, a Christian. And they argued, well, Jesus was a Jew. So if you want to be a Christian, you want to follow Jesus, you, you got to be a Jew first. And one of the main rules for Jews, for the males, is you got to be circumcised on the eighth day. That's why they're called the circumcision party. Say so you can't be a Christian unless you're first following the law of Moses. And here's what they were teaching. You, you got to clean yourself up. you got to get yourself right before you come to Jesus. And Jesus had a, a totally contrary message. And Paul teaches you, you don't have to clean yourself up to come to Jesus. You go to Jesus so he can clean you up. It's backwards. But these Judaizers were saying, no, you can't go directly to Jesus. You got to go through Moses to get to Jesus. And they're beginning to bring this distortion to the gospel, to this church. And Paul knows this distortion could be catastrophic, which is why he says what he says in verse 11. Look at verse 11. He says, They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. They got to be silenced because they're upsetting whole families. They're, they're, They're destroying whole families by teaching something for shameful gain. So here's what the Judaizers did. They would come into a situation and they would begin to polarize. They would begin to talk about this law that they had to follow and and create a religious judgmental attitude that would look down upon the other person. And the reason they did it is because they knew if they could get you looking down on somebody else, you would be with them. You could coalesce around your hatred towards somebody else. They were doing it to make a buck. Probably the the best way I can illustrate this is what I've seen over the the season of the pandemic with some of the news outlets. They've figured out that if they want to have you view and be faithful to their camp, they got to get you hating the other people. If they can get you judging the other people and hating the other people, then you're going to become faithful to their news outlet. And they know They got to get people because they got to sell airtime. They got to sell programming. They got to sell newspapers. And so they're going to try to get you to coalesce against somebody else to be faithful to them, to make money. And and probably the clearest way I saw it being disruptive in families was during the pandemic, the the use of masks. I I saw it so powerful where you'd have this one camp over here who would, would say, oh, my goodness, you people over there wearing masks You're just brainwashed by the government. Don't you realize masks don't do anything? You're all a bunch of fools just following along mindlessly. Take off your mask, it's not doing anything. You're starting to say, if you you wear a mask, you're the them and we're an us and you guys are foolish. Condemnation on that side. But then you go over here to the other side and you have other people being brainwashed to say, oh, look at you people over there. You won't even put on a mask. You hate the elderly and the vulnerable. You'll wear a mask for Halloween, but you won't even wear a mask to save people's lives. Look how evil you are. And so now there's hatred because they're polarized. You know why they do that? Because they know if they can get you polarized, they can get you listening to what they have to say. It's to make a buck. And then what happens when families get together at Thanksgiving, get together at Christmas time, and you have these different political views and different ideas about masculinity? Let me tell you what happens explosions happen. I've never seen families more divided when they come together. We, we experienced it too. Even in our own homes, some going, okay, why, why are you wearing a mask inside the house? We're fine, take it off. Others going, look, you don't even care about grandma. Put on your mask, you're gonna kill her. And arguments and feuding and disputing. Whole families being ripped apart. Why? Because somebody for shameful gain is trying to polarize you. Well, this is exactly what was taking place in the times of the Apostle Paul. This isn't new, right? This isn't the first time people have discovered if I polarize you, I can make a buck off of you. The Judaizers were doing the very same thing. Look at those people. They don't wash their hands like they're supposed to. Look at those people. They don't follow the law of Moses. Oh, yeah, well, look at those people. They don't observe the Sabbath rituals like you're supposed to. Oh, those people, they're polarizing them. Why? Because they could make a buck off you if they could polarize you. They are doing it for shameful gain, Paul says. Therefore, he says, they must be silenced. If you look at that in the Greek, in the beginning of verse 11, when it says they must be silenced, it literally says they must be muzzled. And the idea behind it is these are these wild animals that are gonna rip people to shreds. You gotta muzzle their mouth so they don't hurt anybody. That's actually why he went on in verse 12 to talk about this this reputation the Cretans have of being liars and and evil brutes and lazy gluttons, this idea of the brokenness of humanity. Now, Paul wasn't saying that the believers there were, were all messed up. He's saying this is humanity at its core. We have deceptive hearts we're broken people, we have to be redeemed, we're dangerous on our own. And that's why when he comes back in verse 13, he picks up the same idea of the need to stand against them. Look back at verse 13. Paul says, this testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. He says, Titus, don't put up with any of this stuff, it's too dangerous, rebuke them sharply. Not not lightly, don't don't just let it happen and hope it goes away. He says, you stand up, and in a moment of confrontation, you look them in the eye, and you say, you stop speaking. Rebuke them sharply. Paul was telling Titus, if you mess around with this, their influence is gonna spread like gangrene, and no one's gonna see it coming, and it will kill the church, because that's the power of influence. But I do want you to notice what Paul said. He said something that's super key to this. He didn't say, kick these Judaizers out, he didn't say, get rid of them. He says, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith. So here's what, here's what Paul was after. It wasn't condemnation, it was redemption. He said, they're thinking wrong about the gospel. They're spreading falsehood. You gotta rebuke them so they can come back to be sound in the faith. Let me tell you what sound in the faith means. It means a right understanding of the gospel. You don't wash yourself up to come to Jesus. You come to Jesus so he can wash you clean the right version of it. You don't have to obey all these rules and regulations of Moses to be fit enough to finally come to Jesus, which, by the way, is still the prevalent thought in the world today. So many people think, well, I can't come to church until I change my ways, or I can't get baptized until I get some things right in my life first. They don't realize the order's wrong. You don't don't fix yourself up and then come to Jesus. You can't. And as long as that distortion is there, will utterly kill you. And these Judaizers were spreading this false message. They didn't understand what it meant to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not a work of us, but a work of Christ. And therefore, they taught, not only do you need to follow the law of Moses, but you need to follow the commands of men in order to be right with Jesus. That's actually what he was getting at in the next verse. Keep on moving to verse 14. Listen, Listen to what he says next. He says, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. He says, you've got to bring them back to the sound faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people. Literally, it says the commands of men. Now, the commands of men was a phrase that Jesus himself used. He used it to condemn the Pharisees. This is what was referred to as the law around the law. I don't know if you know this, but over the history of the Jewish nation, in their attempts not to break the law of Moses, you know, they, they didn't want to break God's commands because they knew that would be a walking off a cliff into a destruction. And so in order not to break the law of Moses, what you would do is you would set up this law around the law. It's like basically saying, okay, I'm going to put a fence way over here so that I don't get close to breaking the law of Moses. And so if the, if the law of Moses says, honor the Sabbath and rest, okay, over here, I'm going to make sure you don't take any more than this amount of steps, and that way, you're, you're making sure you don't break that law. Or you don't pick up an object that weighs more than this weight just to make sure that you don't break the law of Moses. Or make sure, even though the law of Moses just says you've got to approach God with ritual purity, okay, well now we're going to have these very robust hand-washing ceremonies that you have to do just to make sure you don't get too close and, and break the law of Moses. It was a, a law around the law to protect you from breaking the law. But these were just the suggestions of human beings. But the problem is the religious people turned them into the commands of Almighty God. And that's what Jesus, I'm gonna flip over, keep it place in Titus, but I wanna read for you what he said in Mark chapter seven, verses five through eight. He speaks clearly, Jesus does here. In Mark chapter seven, verse five, it says, and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? That's the law around the law, the tradition of the elders. But eat with defiled hands. And Jesus said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. You hear that phrase? You're teaching the commandments, the commands of men. That's the same phrase that Paul used in in Titus. You're teaching this as if it's coming from God. And Paul says that is so dangerous for you to get caught up in Jewish myths and in the commandments of men because what it does when you start to put this law around the law, which by the way, the church does it too. You you gotta make sure you give a certain amount of money to the church. You gotta make sure that you spend so much time every morning doing your quiet time. You gotta make sure you serve somewhere. You gotta make sure you mentor a kid, you adopt a kid. You you do all these rules and regulations. As long as you do all this, then God's gonna be good with you. And this is, if you start taking this as the command of God instead of suggestions of men, then it will distort your view of yourself and everyone else around you. Here's here's what's interesting. When you start to believe the commandments of men are of God, you'll end up in one of two places. You'll either hate yourself or you'll hate everyone else around you. It's called self-loathing or self-righteousness. You'll end up in one of those two places every single time. And there are some of you who are here. There There's some of you watching online. The reason you didn't show up is because you don't think it'd be right for you to come to church all hypocritical like you are, because you hate yourself. You're trying so hard to change your ways. You're trying so hard not to look at that image on, online anymore, and you just fail over and over and over again. And you're going, I'm so pathetic. I can't change. I, I try, and I do good, and it's never enough. I keep falling over and over and over again, and I hate myself. God must be so disappointed in me. My parents must be so disappointed. My friends must think I'm pathetic. It's this self-loathing message that comes because you think that your righteousness before God is based on your behavior and you're not living up. Listen, that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel says Jesus was righteous in your place, and he did it perfectly. He didn't miss a single bit of the law of Almighty God. And that righteousness has been imputed, placed upon you, and you claim it as your own. Which means when the father looks at you, he sees his perfectly obedient son. Yeah, you you messed up. Absolutely, so did I. And I can still go before almighty God and I don't have to hate myself because I know the father loves me. If you are hating yourself, loathing yourself, it is a clear sign that you're believing a false gospel, that you think your righteousness is based on your behavior, your patterns. That will destroy you. Or on the other side, if you've come to this place of believing this law around the law is what's most important for you and you got to obey all these rules and regulations, probably the greater danger is to come to a place of self-righteousness, to go, I'm doing pretty stinking good, aren't I? I've gone to church three out of the last four Sundays. I, I even stayed after for the baptisms. It was late for the game. I'm, I'm that righteous. I've been given not just 10%, I've been given 12%. I serve I gave food to the homeless. I've been reading my Bible every morning. And you start to think pretty highly of yourself. And you'll start looking down your nose at everyone else around you. Now, what, what makes self-righteousness so deadly is that you can't see it because you think you're too righteous for it. Like right now, you're going, yeah, I preach it, Jason. These people around me need to hear you. You can't see that I'm talking to you. That God is talking to you. Because self-righteousness blinds you, but it, it kills you because your view of the people around you gets distorted where you start to look down at them and think somehow you're better than they are. But let me tell you what the gospel says. There is no us and them. It's just us. We're all screwed up. We have failed. We've sinned. We've rebelled against God. We have no hope except for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every single one of us is in the same camp. There's no us and them. If ever you feel an us and them, you realize now there's a distortion of the gospel taking place. If you really know the gospel, you don't judge somebody else. You want to tell them the gospel because you're going to come find what I found. And if you're not sharing Christ with people, that's probably a clear sign. You've come over here to this place. of thinking you're better than other people. So insidious because you can't even see it coming. But your view gets distorted. And when your view gets distorted, everything around you gets distorted with it. That's what verse 15 was talking about. Look at that verse. Verse 15, he says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. What he's talking about right there is the lens with which you view the world around you. When the lens is clean, everything around you, you see is clean. When I got smudges of dirt and nastiness over my glasses, everything I look at looks dirty, defiled. When I have a distorted view because I have a distorted heart, everything around me gets distorted and I get really, really dangerous to myself and to the people around me. Now, I I figured a way that I can illustrate this, but I'm gonna need some help from a man over there. Rod, he's sitting right in the middle. He's gonna have to pass by you. Rod Noonan is gonna come up here and help us out. Let's give it up for Rod Noonan. Those of you who know him, love him. He's about to be publicly shamed in front of all of you. Um, he's in my D group, and so he, uh, <laughs> this is other duties as assigned in D group over here. But uh, Rod, thanks, man. Appreciate well, you coming well, up thanks. here. You didn't know what you were getting into, but you said yes. I did. Yeah. Good morning. All right. So um, Rod, in a moment, is going to put on these goggles right here, which are called fatal vision goggles. These goggles, uh, oftentimes used by police departments and college campuses, and it's intended to imitate drunkenness. So when you look, your vision will get distorted. And the idea behind this is to help you see like how hard it is to operate. So you teach people not to drive drunk and stuff like that. So I have up here uh, a line and say we have a, a cameraman. So I'm gonna have you come on this side actually. And so you could see from the camera over here, the line. I want you right now just to show that you can walk a straight line, that you're not presently inebriated. Okay, yeah, good job, good job. Okay, yeah, head on back. I like those boots, Rod. Those good-looking boots. Okay. Now, you're going to put these goggles on. You're going to keep them on. Uh, and you're going to try to do the same thing at about the same speed. Okay. Uh, nope, nope, nope. You missed it. You missed it. Come back over. Come back over. Okay, huh? See, See the blue line? Okay, yeah, your foot's on it. Now go for it. Nope, nope, nope. No, I <laughs> missed it. Come on back. Come on back. See, so You see the line? Come on back. One more try. One more try. See the blue line? Yeah, oh, 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 no, no, you're drifting. You're, that's okay, Calm. all right, all right, all right, good, 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 good. Keep the goggles on, that was a good try. Now, you stay right here. Okay, here's what I got. I got a pin, okay, you see the pin. Now, what you're gonna do, in a, or you're gonna catch it, don't worry. You're gonna, you're gonna put your hand up, and you're gonna try to come down about that speed, right there like that, to put your finger on Okay, put your hand up in the air, up in the air, up high. Okay, now just touch the pin. Oh, nope, missed it. Okay, try again. Uh, 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 Almost, almost. There you go. Okay, good. One more. One more try. These are nice, soft little snowballs. Yeah, they're not baseballs. Okay, you're going to catch. Catch. Oh, that was was close. That was close. Go real close. Real close. Oh, so close. Okay, here you go. Oh, you got one. You got one. Okay. Actually, uh, Susan, I need a microphone down here. You can, you can take the goggles off. So uh, here's what I want, right? I want you to ask, I want you to answer the simple question. How did it feel wearing those goggles and trying to do those exercises? Um, like someone spiked the church coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that's why I had you do the line first so they would know. Because with you, we never really know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, super disoriented, right? Yeah. Uh, so describe what you think would happen if you wore those goggles and tried to drive home. Uh, I probably wouldn't make it out of the parking lot. Yeah, yeah, you'd hurt yourself, people around you. Yeah, sure. Natalie would be mad. Natalie would be, uh, very. So let me ask you a question. Are you ever gonna drive drunk? No, sir. Okay, the goggles did their job, hey. praise the Lord. <laughs> hey, thanks, brother. Thanks. You survived. We take that to Susan down there, that'd be great. So what you just saw was the power of distorted vision. Uh, And I know you're going to want to come up here and check these out after the service is over. Uh, It's pretty fun. I've tried. I I, I can't. No matter how hard you try, it's so disorienting. You can't walk straight. You can't operate a vehicle. In fact, they go on to college campuses and they get you behind a video game where you're trying to drive and they let you do it with these goggles and you just crash over and over and over again. And then they say, all right, that's what it's like when you try to drive drunk. And they're trying to teach him not to do so. This is what happens when your vision gets distorted. You hurt yourself and everyone else around you. But every college student knows that. They know that drunkenness is dangerous. And yet so many of them still get behind the wheel and drive. Do you want to know why? Because they don't know how drunk they really are. That's the crazy thing about being drunk, is that oftentimes you can't even realize that it's happening. You don't realize your vision is distorted. It's not like Rod who put on the goggles and it was an an immediate shift and you know that your vision's off. When you're you're drunk, people, they assume they can still operate it. And if you look at them from the outside, 90% of the time they look just the same as anybody else. But on the inside, their vision is distorted. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about. What makes it so deadly is that you can't even tell that your vision is distorted. Because what it looks like from the outside looks almost identical. Somebody who is self-loathing, somebody who is self-righteous, and somebody who is sound in the faith can look the exact same on the outside. What do I mean by that? All three of them go to church. All three of them read their Bibles. All three of them give money to the church. All three of them mentor kids and adopt children. All three of them do really good things and look very religious from the outside. But on the inside, they're vastly different. They're doing it from different motivations. The question is, what's your heart like? Because if you do it with the wrong motivation, you're gonna kill yourself and everyone else around you because your vision is distorted, whether you can tell or not. You're gonna get behind the wheel of your life and you're gonna kill yourself through your self-loathing, or you are gonna kill everybody else around you with your judgmentalism? How's your heart? To which you go, I don't know, Jason. You just told me I can't tell the difference. I might think I'm doing okay, but I'm not. Well, how do I know whether my heart is right or not? Very simple, by the fruit of your works, you will know the condition of your heart. Jesus taught this. He said, you're gonna know how healthy a tree is by its fruit. If the fruit is healthy, the tree is healthy. If the fruit is sickly, the tree is sickly. Here's what's so interesting about that. The tree can look the exact same on the outside, lush green with leaves and branches. On the outside, it looks the same until you get up closer and you examine the fruit. And then you realize one's healthy, one's not. By the fruit of their works, you'll know. This is exactly what Paul was getting at back in verse 16. Look at that last verse one last time. Titus chapter 1, verse 16. It says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Yeah, they speak a good game. They they profess to know him with their lips. But when you really look at the fruit of their actions, you're going to see that they're dead inside, that they're dangerous and their vision is distorted. The fruit of the works, that's what's going to tell you. So my question is, what does your fruit say about your heart? There are a lot of people in this self-loathing camp and all their spiritual drive is born from trying to prove that they're good enough for the salvation that's supposed to be freely given to them. It's so interesting to study people in this category. In fact, there's big studies done about Mother Teresa and she openly confessed over and over and over again how she never felt good enough before God. What drove her to give more, to serve more, to sacrifice more was this sense. She journaled all her prayers. She would talk about it openly. I just don't feel like God should love a person like me. And it would drive her to more and more and more religious works. There's no one who would look at Mother Teresa from the outside and say, there's something wrong on the inside. But because she was open enough to let you look on the inside, she told the world, no, my heart is hurting. I don't feel loved by God. And I do more and more and more to try to be loved. Listen, if you're feeling that, that's sickly fruit. The gospel says you are more loved, we sing it right now than you will ever be. You are more loved right now than you could possibly comprehend. The father sends his own son to die on a cross because he loves you and wants you, is coming after you. You don't have to do anything else. You don't have to adopt another kid. You don't have to give another penny. You don't have to serve at another service. You don't have to do anything else except receive the love of Almighty God. Now, you may choose to do a whole lot of stuff to serve God, but you're doing it from a soundness of faith of going, I don't have to do anything, God, because you love me perfectly. I just can't help it. I just want to serve you. I just want to bring another child into my home. I just want to mentor a kid. I just want to give more away. God, because I'm so overwhelmed that you would love somebody like me. You see the difference between those two? If it's self-loathing, something's wrong with your faith in the gospel, and you're dangerous to yourself. Let me say it over here, too, though. In self-righteousness. You're a danger to everyone else around you because you are going to be filled with judgmentalism toward them. And that is so deadly. There are people who will not step foot into a church because they feel so judged. People who've been told as they were growing up, well, you can't wear a ball cap in church. That's dishonoring God. Oh, you can't, no, you can't do that. You can't, don't don't you take that substance. Don't you do all these do's and don'ts. They've been so burned. They will not step foot in the church. They feel so judged. There's some of you watching online right now. The reason you won't step foot in is because you know what I'm talking about. We kill people with judgmentalism because they don't live up to some kind of standard that we create, this law around the law. And God is saying, I've had enough of it. We have to humble ourselves. Remember what I said earlier? There's no us and them. It's us. We're all jacked up. We all need the grace of King Jesus. And when we trumpet that, then the world says, well, I'm coming there because they, they bring me in, and we let the gospel work on people. We don't set this burden on their shoulders and say, yeah, you got to figure all these rules and regulations." You got to do church the way I do church, or it doesn't matter. It doesn't count. God is saying, stop killing my people. I've got sheep outside the fold I want to bring in. They won't come in because you're deadly. It's like we're driving a car, and we want to tell the world that we believe in Jesus. And so we got to like, Jesus in my place, bumper stickers, and Jesus loves real, you know, real men love Jesus stickers and crosses and all the stuff all over. And then we decide I'm so stinking spiritual, I'm gonna get stained glass on all my windows. And I'm gonna put like Bible scenes and crosses, and anybody who looks at this car is gonna know that I'm a Christian. And they get on the road and they try to drive down the highway with stained glass on the front of their window. And they're just mowing people down, and they can't see it because they got that beautiful stained glass all their religiosity, and God is saying, would you get rid of all that religiosity? Would you clean the windows so you can see with a pure heart everybody else? God is calling us to change as the church. So my question to you is, how's your heart? How's the fruit? Do you see self-righteousness or self-loathing? Because God has just given you a window to your heart right there, and he's telling you that window is stained and it needs to be cleaned. To which you may go, okay, Jason, I'm, it's been a little brutal for me this morning, but I hear you. But how do I change my heart? Well, I want to go back to what I said at the beginning. You change your heart by letting somebody influence you with two key factors. I don't know if you remember what I said. It's connected, who you're connected to and who you trust. That's how you're going to be influenced. The more connected you are, the more trusting you are, the more influenced you'll be. It's not by trying harder. It's not by making a resolution that you're gonna be better, less self-righteous or less self-loathing. That falls right back into the Judaizer's trap of saying you gotta try harder. You gotta work harder. No, that doesn't help anybody. What you do is you let in the right kind of influence. But I'm I'm not talking about joining a community group or a D group as important as those things are. I'm I'm not talking about those. I'm not talking about the influence of good people. I'm talking about the influence of the greatest person, Jesus Christ. Because the way Jesus changes you is not from the outside. He does it from the inside. We trust in him. We recognize in in humility I'm broken. I say, Jesus, forgive me. I ask him to come in and cleanse me out, takes away all my sin, puts his very spirit inside of me, and then his influence becomes dominant. And all of a sudden I begin to change. I'm no longer judging on those other people. I now want to take the gospel to them. I'm now giving more than I've ever given before, not because I have to, because I long to. I'm serving like I've never served before because I can't wait to serve God more and more because he's inside me, changing me, reminding me of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the key is being connected to the vine. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you're not connected to me, you can't do anything. But when you're connected to me, then my spirit flows into you. Connected to him and then trust him with everything. And that's where you need to ask yourself, are you there? Listen, I, I believe there are some of you who are here this morning and you've been around church for a long time. And maybe the Spirit is just now revealing to you that you fall fallen prey to a sickly fruit. You, you see self-loathing in you or you see self-righteousness in you. And you're wondering, have I really come to the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's not complicated. Going to church is not enough to save you. Listening to sermons online is not enough to save you. What saves you is con- humbling yourself enough to confess your sin and say, oh man, I'm, I'm screwed up, God, I know it. I'm never going to fix myself. Jesus, I need you. Come take away my sin and then come take over me. That's the trust part. Every bit of me, I'm not going to hold anything back. I'm going to give you everything. My future, my dreams, my job, my children, my world, my house, my car, everything. God, it belongs to you. I give you everything. And when that happens and you connect to the vine and you trust him in everything, here's what happens. He radically transforms you. But it has to start with you saying, I am not ashamed of my Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me before men, I'm gonna be ashamed of you before my Father. If you really want me to come in and to influence you, to connect with you and to give you power, then you gotta be unashamed of me. This is the main reason why I believe God tells us that the way you profess publicly your faith in Jesus Christ is through the act of baptism. Because there is nothing more shameful in the eyes of men than to put on a T-shirt that says, Jesus in my place. How many people are offended by so many in the world, but you boldly say, I belong to Jesus. And then you come up into this baptistry and you take a public bath with your clothes on. That's That's shameful to the world. And yet when a heart says, Jesus, I'm unashamed of you, and if this is the means by which I show that I'm unashamed of you, then I'm ready to take my public bath with my Jesus in my place t-shirt on. Because this is the means by which I declare my faith is in you. I wonder if there's not some of you in this room today who need to stop messing around with this, thinking that it's good enough that you're here today, good enough that you're trying to do some good things and just say, no, I now understand. I gotta give him everything. I gotta trust him with my whole life. I gotta be unashamed of Jesus. I'm ready today. That's you. We're going to have pastors down front ready to pray with you and help you. And before you leave the day, you can have that moment to say, I'm unashamed of you, Jesus. I'm going to declare it through baptism. I pray you'll get your heart ready. Before I allow you to come, though, let me say one last thing. There are many of you who are believers in Jesus, and you're still struggling with the two things I was talking about, self-loathing and self-righteousness. It can still happen because you can begin to get disconnected from the vine, and you, you can begin to hold things back from him and not trust him with everything. Remember, connectedness and trust. Those are the two factors of influence. And so I believe today, some of you may need to say, okay, God, I'm reconnecting to you, Jesus, and I'm putting this situation that has me overwhelmed back in your hands. Every week we have prayer team members who are ready to pray with you. This is a symbol of you saying, I want to be connected to you, Jesus. I'm putting my trust in you for this situation, for this issue, for this struggle. I want you to exercise humility and faith. Coming down front to say you have need is humbling, but it's also an act of faith, believing God can hear you and do something about it. So I'm gonna invite you all to stand up right now, if you will. I'm gonna invite the prayer team to come spread around. And I don't want you to rush through this. Listen, there's nothing more important going on in your life than this right now. Because God may wanna talk to you and move in you. Remind you, if today you need prayer and you're ready to put that issue back in the hands of Almighty God, we're just here to partner with you so you can say, God, I'm connecting back to you uh, and I'm putting this need in your hands. And if you're ready today to say, I'm unashamed of you, Jesus, I'm ready to declare my faith in Jesus Christ because I need you to save me, then you come let us know and we'll counsel with you. We'll get you ready. And if today you're ready to take that step of faith, we'll make it happen. You respond right now as you need to.